I always enjoy Palm Sunday. It's fun walking around, and I have good memories of uh, when we were church planting. I was leading over to Luann, and I, we had a, one of the young families in our church. It was a local uh, general practitioner, and he used to walk around on Palm Sundays with one of his kids in his shoulders and waving palm branches. He was just a big kid. And uh, I was thinking of him as we were walking around this morning celebrating Palm Sunday. It's, it's just a good memory. Another thing that I think about Palm Sunday reminds me that people only see what they want to see. People only see what they want to see. Now tell me, what do you see here in my hand? This pitcher of water that I have in my hand. How many people say it's half full? How many people say it's half empty? Okay, that's a kind of a, depends on your temperament, right? It's the same amount of water. Is this pitcher half full or half empty? Don't worry, I'm not extremely uh, thirsty this morning, and I'm not going to start any baptisms yet. It's, it's not my style. I like to get people all wet. By the way, if you want to hang around after church and investigate the whole idea of baptism, what it means to follow Jesus publicly, hang around afterwards for lunch, and uh, we'll explain it to you. But depending on your perspective, this picture is either half full or half empty. I'll think about that. I'm going to leave it down there. If you're really thirsty, you can help yourself after I'm done. Now think about this for a minute, friends. We're going to uh, read the story of Palm Sunday, but Palm Sunday for me, even though it's it's uh, very celebratory, it's, for me it's also kind of semi-tragic, because for me it's a story of a missed opportunity, and I'll explain why in a moment. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage and the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he'll immediately let you take them. And that will also keep you out of jail. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. The people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The whole of the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now think about this. What a wild, boisterous celebration. When the jets came back, did anybody go down to Portage in Maine or the forks to take part in that party? My son Caleb did. And it was great. There were spontaneous, there were street hockey games breaking out in Portage in Maine, and, and they, they, they tried to move people to the ports so they wouldn't block traffic and things like that. But it was a great spontaneous celebration. 
Just imagine, next year, about this time, when they make the playoffs, maybe, Lord willing, I hope, just wait, then you'll see a spontaneous, then you'll see a spontaneous celebration. I, I, I'm not a Maple Leafs fan. Uh, I was, and uh, then after I met Jesus, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now all the Toronto fans will get all insecure and upset right now, but they're fun to poke fun at. That's really why I do it. But, um, I figured my point. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's always next year, next year, next year um, for them as well, right? And we think, oh, you know, one of these days it's, it's going to happen. And we, we always tease, uh, we have a joke in my family between my son Mike and I, whenever the Leafs go on a winning streak or three or four games, we joke, oh, time to plan the parade, you know, time to plan the parade. But you can just imagine. I think how Winnipeg would react if, if, and when, when the Jets make the playoffs. It's that kind of spontaneous celebration that just happened that day when Jesus was around. Now, now there was some background to it. There were a lot of people in the crowd, in the great crowds filled with anticipation. There were very devout um, Pilgrims gathered for Passover. It was one of the most important events of the year. And to, re to remind people of how God had delivered his people out of Egypt. So people were gathered there as well. There were people who had heard and seen Lazarus being raised from the dead just a few days before. And they were still hanging around. And they knew that there was a buzz around Jesus. There were just crowds in the city actually came out to see what was going on. You know how news spreads. They didn't have Facebook in those days, but it was kind of the equivalent of Facebook. Everybody goes out and just chatted. It's just a buzz in the city, and everybody rushes out to, to see what's going on. Imagine the conversations in the crowd. This is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. I saw it with my own eyes. Or I heard about it from my cousin up in Galilee. He does miracles. Oh, that guy, okay. He's riding a colt, just like the prophet Zechariah said. He's coming in peace. It's the whole idea of the imagery of the colt, right? Conquering heroes come in on a white charger and saying, I'm in charge. But the scriptural um, background and illustration that Jesus was pointing out is saying, I am coming in peace to bring God's peace with me. That's why I was writing in full. In fact, Jesus was very intentional about his mode of transportation that day. If you look back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the symbolism was all about coming in peace, coming as a peaceful ruler to bring God's peace to God's kingdom. Now people, just look at the picture, just saw what they wanted to see. And Jesus was trying to clearly communicate that he had come to bring about God's kingdom, a kingdom of peace. But I think many people thought, I am so sick and tired of these despicable Romans. Finally, we have a miracle worker who's going to come in here and change the political situation for the better. And finally, we're going to kick those rascals out and we're going to get our country back. We're going to get our life back. 
times. Jesus was being very blunt and confrontational with the religious leaders. He was basically saying, I'm it. I'm the Messiah. They've been plotting about how to kill him. The plans were all in place. They were just looking for an opportunity to pounce on him and find something to accuse him of and get rid of him. Jesus knew he was walking into a death trap. The scripture said, he said his face like flint. He was just very determined. And he kept warning all his clueless friends. God bless the disciples. They're so much like us. Half the time we don't have a clue what Jesus is doing. We think we do, but we don't. And he keeps warning his friends, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and when I get there, they're going to hand me over to the authorities, and they're going to kill me. And Jesus, and, and Peter at one point, bless his heart, says, no way, no, 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 Jesus, we're not going to let that happen, no way, we're not going to let anything bad happen to you. And you know the story, that Jesus has to rebuke him and straighten him out and say, no, this is God's path for me, this is God's plan. But Jesus very provocatively rides into town in a coal, fulfilling the prophecy deliberately that Zechariah says, hey, here's the king. Here's the new king of the Jews. But people only see what they want to see. So what they saw was a political hero. And you really can't bring peace through political means. You can bring a cessation of hostilities. That would be an improvement. If people could bring peace into the Crimea and Ukraine, that would, be a, that would be an improvement on the situation, right? It wouldn't be reconciliation, but at least there would be some kind of a ceasefire and an end to any potential violence. But Jesus was more, he's so much more than a political solution. Because you can have a political solution like North and South Korea. North and South Korea have officially been at war since 19. And you can go to the demilitarized zone, the DMZ they call it, and you can go in uh, to this room uh, where the peace treaty was signed, and there's a, one end of the table is North Korea, the other end of the table is South Korea, and there's very strict protocol about how you behave in that room. And in fact, it's become kind of a bizarre tourist attraction. I guess if there's nothing else to do in Korea, you can go see the DMZ. But to me, it just points out that we want peace in the world, but we're always thinking political peace. Peace at the end of a bayonet. You don't kill me and I won't kill you. Well, that sounds really peaceful, right? They call it a Mexican standoff when you've got a loaded revolver pointing at each other. Jesus came to bring real peace. Not just a political ceasefire, but he came to bring real peace so we could be reconciled with God the Father reconciled on the inside. To me, that's much more challenging and much more difficult to achieve than just a political peace, a ceasefire. Because you can impose a peace through political force. If I come in with more tanks and more guns and more planes, I could impose my peace on you. Right? Jesus doesn't come this way. He doesn't come in on a big white war horse. He comes in on a humble little donkey. By the way, as a farm kid, I'm always intrigued with this story. This colt was not broken. Now, I've been broken a few times trying to break horses, so I can appreciate the difficulty of Jesus riding on a 
rookie, newbie, cold, getting on, no fussing, no mussing, probably walking along Mama, helped in the parade, but think of all the noise and racket and distractions, and Jesus is just riding on this pole. Uh, to me, that's just kind of a, a minor miracle. And how they got it in the first place, there's just a word of knowledge from God, yeah, yeah, there's a pole tied up, it's all arranged, go ahead and say, who pulled those strings? But this is just a setup. Jesus was trying to demonstrate to people, like I'm trying to demonstrate here with this picture of how the water. He, he's painting a, a vivid word picture of what he's come to do. And some people get it, and some people don't. But people only see what they want to see. So I don't know what you're seeing of Jesus this morning. I don't know what your expectations of Jesus are this morning. I don't know what you see. When we look at Jesus, do we really see him or do we only or only what we want to get out of him? Do we see someone who wants to change us from the inside? But at tremendous cost to us. Because if we want Jesus to change us from the inside, do you know what we have to give up? Not much, just total control. He's got to drive. He's got to be in charge. Now, if you're like me, I keep wanting to grab the keys back and say, I'll take it from here, Jesus. I'll be here. I can, I can negotiate this part. I'll call you if I need you. Hang around. And, you know, it's kind of like in case of emergency, break glass and pull. You know, we keep, want to keep Jesus handy in case we need him. But we don't really want him telling us what to do. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, let me be in charge. Let me drive. <coughs> We have a challenge, don't we? So when we look at Jesus, do we really see him or only what we want to get out of him? Perhaps we want someone to fix my problems, someone to fix my spouse, someone to fix my job, someone to fix my kids, someone to fix my family, someone to fix my life. It's a mess. Jesus, fix it. Now, Jesus wants to come in and change us and give us life the way it was really meant to be but on his terms, not on our terms. And because he's a creator, he made us to know him. He does know what's best for us. He truly does. But we have a problem with that trusting him, don't we, sometimes? Maybe we want someone to make me happy. I'm so happy. I want Jesus to make me happy. Well, knowing Jesus, and having your sins forgiven and feeling free from all the junk that just drags us down in life can make us tremendously joyful and hopeful. But happiness only happens when our happenings happen the way we want our happens to happen. It's kind of circumstantial. I'll run that by again. Happenings only ha happiness only happens when our happenings happen the way we want our happenings to happen. And it's kind of dependent on circumstances. But Jesus hasn't come to make us happy, but he's come to bring us peace and joy and reconciliation with the God who made us. That's why he's come. And it's an internal kingdom. An internal kingdom is much harder to conquer than an external kingdom. Because I can use brute force to compel you to do what I tell you to do. But Jesus offers himself 
so that we willingly surrender and follow him, and he dramatically changes us from the inside out. Some people want Jesus, they say, make me wealthy and successful, like some of those interesting characters you watch on TV. Ignore that nonsense. Do we seek to use Jesus for our own purposes? Because that's not what Palm Sunday is about. Palm Sunday is about Jesus anticipating going to that thing, that, that cross that's standing over there. That's why it's decorated that way. That's why we had kids and other participants lay the palm branches at the foot of the cross. That's why Jesus came to die for us, to offer himself up for us so he could rescue us from this our slavery, our self-destructive, self-obsessive, self-centered lives. That's why he came. So are we missing an opportunity just like the crowd on Palm Sunday? Are we missing that? Are we coming with another agenda here this morning? I'm glad you're here. Okay, don't, don't, don't take that the wrong way. Well, the pastor said, doesn't care if we come or not, so fine, I'll sleep in next Sunday. Well, don't sleep in next Sunday. Eight o'clock, John's preaching, it's going to be great. And then there's breakfast and more celebration. Easter, I think, is the most wonderful day of the year, not Christmas. I'll tell you more about that next week to explain why. But I wonder, are we missing an opportunity this morning, just like the crowd on Palm Sunday. Because they were looking at Jesus one way. Most of them were looking at Jesus one way. A conquering hero, a political figure who's going to come and change their circumstances. Jesus is come to change our character and our spirit from the inside, which is much more challenging. I want to talk to you just for a moment slightly change gears and talk about the church's frightful Kodak moment. There's an article I read recently by this title. The man's name is Tom Schultz, and he writes for a Christian publication in Colorado. And he's describing the way that the church has done church for the last 50 years. Now, it's worked great for 50 years. But what we're finding is that people are drifting away because People come on Sunday and they come. We, we missed the whole point of following Jesus. People are coming for a religious event. They're coming for something else rather than encountering the living God. And they're doing it out of habit, which there are good habits, but they're coming with these expectations. They're coming with, well, I, I hope I like the music and I hope the message isn't too boring and I hope sure hope Rick doesn't go overtime because I've got plans for lunch. And we miss the whole point, the whole point of why we're gathered here. We come with these different expectations. So the church has been doing things like this for decades. What's the purpose of Elam Chapel? Does anybody remember what we're here for? I'll get to that in a minute. Just, just be thinking. I've got an answer for you. So here's the church's frightful Kodak moment. You know, the, the whole story of, of, of Kodak. Does anybody recognize what, how many people know what that picture means? Someone is putting film in a camera. 
For those of you who are under 30, let me explain how this works. In the olden days, just after the Earth's crust had we used to take pictures with these things called cameras. But to get the images recorded, we'd have to insert film, this thing called film. And the company that made the most film in the world was a company called Kodak. And they did it really, really, really well. They were so good at making film for cameras, they were the biggest film company in the world. And in 1975, someone working for the Kodak company invented the digital camera. And the people at Kodak said, that's a cute idea, but don't tell anybody about it. And they went on making film because they were really good at making film. And they made the best film in the world. And they kept on making these film cameras. In the meantime, other companies discovered digital cameras. And they made more and more and more and more digital cameras until what happened one day? Kodak, in 2012, went into bankruptcy. And now they're gone. They're dust. They did their best. They tried to rejig the way they did things, but they expired. Now here's a word to us as a church. The gospel that changes people will never go out of style. The Jesus kingdom will never fail. But the way we do church our methodology may need to change. It may need to change. Because what is our core business as a church? Is it having religious services on Sundays? No, it's not. Our core business, we exist to love God and to make disciples. We're here to help. We're help here to help people become followers of Jesus. Now what we do on a Sunday morning hopefully will help, but that's not what we're all about. It's easy for us to get off track, just like the Kodak company thought our main business is to make film. Their main business was really to make images and pictures, right? But they got caught up in their methodology. When someone came along with a different way of making images, they, they, couldn't, they just couldn't adapt. They said, no, we've got to make more and better film. Our core business is to make disciples of Jesus. That's what Jesus did in the Gospels. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. But it's easy for us as a church to get off track and to spend so much time investing in planning religious events that we miss the point that what we're really supposed to be about is making disciples or Jesus followers. So this is the question we need to ask ourselves today. Are we Jesus followers or are we just religious consumers? Looking for a good deal on Sunday morning. Are we shopping around for a church? Common terminology. Because I go to all the big box stores to get the best deal on whatever widget I want to buy. So I scout around to the churches and see what's the best deal I can get. It's the consumerism that's so prevalent in Canada today. It's, it's taken over the church. 
It's heavily influenced the church. Listen to me carefully. I'm not ranting and saying that Sunday mornings are bad. I'm not going to set another fire in Eagle Chapel. We're not going to burn the organ. We're not going to ban the choir. Take a deep breath and step away from the ledge. Listen to me carefully. Everything we do is all about helping people learn how to follow Jesus. Okay? That's our core business. It's not about entertaining people on Sunday. It's not about making people happy. God willing, what we do will be relevant. And if it's led by the Holy Spirit, it can't help but change people's lives. God willing, I want you all to come back here on Sunday morning wearing helmets. Do you know why? You just don't know what might happen. Not because I'm going to be irrational and throw heavy objects around, but because God might show up in power. He might reveal himself. Let, let, let me be more accurate than that, because God doesn't show up. He's just here all the time. But God might reveal himself in dramatic ways. And I'm not saying weird and flaky, but just God is God, so he can do whatever he wants. God is God, so you can do whatever he wants, right? Okay, anybody who said that, don't blame it on me, all right? Because you agree to it, but you're right. There's a temptation for us to be religious consumers and come and sit nicely and behave and get whatever we want out of the service. Am I going on too long? People want to No. <laughs> But we want what we want on the surface to meet our expectations. You see, people wanted Jesus on Palm Sunday to meet their expectations. They wanted someone to throw out the Romans and change the political landscape of their country. But he, again, wants to change people from the inside out. We want, often want Jesus to fix something and fix our problems. And that's legitimate to bring our, it's, it's legitimate to bring our broken hearts to Jesus. But when we come to him, he says provocative stuff like, if you're going to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross, this thing over here. Pick it up every day and follow me. What a great recruiting symbol. Back in that day, the only people who were carrying crosses around were condemned criminals on their way to be tortured to death by the Romans. They might last two or three days in that cross. Oh, that's going to bring them in. What a clever logo. Madison Avenue would never have passed that. I, I wear a cross. Kind of foolish, right? What, how morbid. Who's wearing a cross today? That's what it means. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to die to ourselves, die to our own agenda, and say, okay, Jesus, you're the boss. Now, here's the deal. Here's the good news. Because I don't want to leave you feeling morbid about wearing a cross or carrying a cross. Jesus said, if we die to ourselves, we get a life that was really meant for us in the first place. Anyone who tries to keep their life is going to lose it, but anyone willing to lose their life for Jesus' sake will gain eternal life. And 
not just life after our physical body wears out. Eternal life starts as soon as you start following Jesus. I started experiencing eternal life years ago. Now, you wouldn't know that by looking at me because I'm getting older and grayer and scarier by the day. But I'm experiencing eternal life because when this body, this tent, wears out, I'm not going to get recycled. My eternal life is just going to go on. And you can have that opportunity too. So what are you saying? Palm Sunday. Why not get started on eternal life today? What do you think? Is that a good deal? That's what Jesus is all about. It's eternal life that he's offering you. means freedom from our selfishness, our self-absorption, our sin. That's what it means. It's far more than showing up on a Sunday for a religious event. It's a total life transformation. That's the business that Jesus is in. And if you're interested in that, hang around. Have lunch with Pastor John and I because we're going to be talking about baptism and being a part of God's family and what that looks like. Alright? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we want to be your followers. We don't want to be religious consumers. And we ask you to forgive us when we come in here with an agenda and demand this and that of you. We, we have no right to do that. But we are asking that you change us from the inside out, that you transform us. And will you show us how to be followers of you? Will you teach us how to be disciples? Help us discover as a church family how to do that with each other. We're looking forward to day when this Elam Chapel is known for making disciples. It is a healthy place where people are restored and you change people and there will be so many stories of your transformation. We look forward to that day. Thank you for being with us today. And I pray that you reveal yourself to any seeking heart today. If there, there are people here who are spiritually hungry and desperate and they need spiritual reality. We all pray for that. So will you speak to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. The song we're going to post today is a new one, I think, for almost all of us. And it's, uh, I take the blame for it. It's, uh, or I take the responsibility for it. It's uh, called, I Will Build My Church. And we learned it uh, years ago when... Um, we were church planting in Ontario. And uh, it, it's a direct quote from what Jesus said uh, to Peter. He says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here's what it means. Jesus is establishing a community, a family on earth. All right? We're, we're part of that. If you follow Jesus, we're all part of that. We're all in, in, in this together. And when he says the gates of hell will not against that. It means that we are taking back enemy territory that has been usurped or stolen from its rightful owner. God made the earth. He's got rightful ownership to the whole deal. But Satan came in and snatched that from him to deceive generations of people into following him. And if you've been set free from Satan's clutches, you know what it's like to live freely, right? You know what that's like. 
So, as we march, as we go forward with Jesus, it says the gates of hell will not prevail against us. They will not win. They will not be able to withstand it. I've never been attacked by a gate. And odds are you've never been attacked by a gate either. The words imply that we are on the move with Jesus going forward, extending his kingdom. I think that gives us, to me, that gives me all kinds of 